welcome to Mostly Books Meets. I'm Sarah. I'm Imogen. And I'm Lindsay. And together we are the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life. And we hope you'll join us for the journey. Hi, I'm Sarah. This week, I'm talking to author, dog lover, pirate specialist and map enthusiast, Gideon Defoe. After graduating from what he refers to as a slightly pointless degree in archaeology and anthropology, Gideon worked in bars and at a range of temp jobs whilst he worked out what he wanted to do with his career. His first book, The Pirates in an Adventure with Scientists, was written to impress a girl, and I hope that she was impressed, because not only did the book go on to be a huge success, four further books were published in the same series, and his first book was made into an award-winning animation film in 2012 featuring the likes of Hugh Grant, Martin Freeman and David Tennant. Lately, Gideon has turned his attention to non-fiction with his new book, An Atlas of Extinct Countries. And having recently moved out of the big smoke to Oxfordshire, there's a lot going on. Gideon, or Gid, welcome to our podcast. Hi, thank you for having me on. um, I've got to correct you on a couple of things that you said there because uh, I only occasionally love my dog because sometimes I don't love him at all because he's he's a bit of a git. Um, But uh, also, you know, describing the park books as like... uh, I think you just said a, a huge success or something. It's like, a, yeah, very much a cult success in terms of, you know, I've got the sort of royalty statements and, um, yeah, it's, uh, let, let's not exaggerate that. That's it, was it, it was successful. It was, it was, yeah, it kind of, um, yeah, it, it, it found its niche, I guess. That's, yeah. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Right. To start things off, I'd like to go back to your childhood. You and your family moved around quite a lot, but when you asked, you said you were from Littlehampton on the south coast. What was life like for you as a child? Um, I mean, it's you know, growing up on anyone that's grown up on sort of south coast or um, one of those you know kind of faded Victorian spa town type things. No, it's kind of like it's an odd mix of it's really good, it's also a bit bleak. But I was quite a happy uh, kid. Uh, I was sort of a bit of a nerd and it was you know i was kind of i think uh, uh sorry I, I i did warn you uh, in advance of this that lockdown has made me unable to actually get to the end of the sentence and I, do, uh, <laughs> I think all the best people are a bit of a nerd yeah well yeah i mean uh, no, no i don't know i don't know i used to think you know have that thing of like oh no it's good being special and shy and a bit like nervous and stuff and then you realize it's not actually it's a bit boring isn't it so i think i would prefer to be a jock but anyway it's too late for for all that but um yeah no basically i i was fairly happy little kid and liked my lego and liked my my doctor who books that was that was my big thing yeah talk to us about doctor who books you said that that was the first book that you really remember enjoying yeah i mean because there, there was stuff you know that um my mom used to read to me and everything that i you know i i, I liked but i was kind of like i was quite a slow reader at school I was sort of in the, the you know remedial bit where they gave you the various sort of different learn to read books and we had the pirate ones which obviously would later influence me quite a lot and they were kind of the first thing that I remember 
I was like, oh, okay, this reading thing isn't awful. But then, yeah, Doctor Who books were the kind of thing that turned me into uh, a reader in terms of, you know, it was the, the the high point of my week was, you know, going to search for Doctor Who books in WH Smiths. And, you know, I remember my mum once finding, uh, she'd gone to London or something and she came back with this big stack of like, not even the paperback target ones but uh, the proper hardback of books which you know you only kind of have found in libraries and she got hold of this big stack that they were selling off from direct smiths for kind of 10p each or something and yeah don't think i've ever recaptured that high i think that remains <laughs> the the best day by far of my life but yeah so in terms of kind of the books I owe the most to, it would be Terence Dix and Doctor Who and the Brain of Morbius was the, the first one I read, which um, cause I think they did a junior edition of that. I mean, you know, not that the normal Doctor Who books are sort of like aimed uh, super adult, but yeah, it was those, are, I guess, you know, that sort of epiphany you have when you think, you know, oh, actually, I can like books as much as I like TV. Yeah, I was at an author event fairly recently and the author did a really good analogy for kids where he compared what happens if you watch a TV programme that you don't enjoy and you just find another alternative TV programme, whereas a lot of people when they say they don't they, they don't find the book they enjoy, they just think they don't like reading. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah. The realisation that actually, just because you haven't found the book. I mean, it's a, I think there's a lot of weird stuff kind of tied up with books and people's attitudes to books and you know people feeling sort of uh, weirdly you know like guilty about abandoning books and stuff and it's kind of like yeah you, you don't think twice about turning something off after five minutes if you know it's rubbish that you found on Netflix or whatever and it just kind of certainly the number of books that I have got 10 pages into compared with the number of books that I have completed to the end um, is probably a ratio of about 10 to 1, to be honest. I absolutely doubt. But, you know, I've got mates who kind of find that weird and just, you know, you, you start a book you're meant to power through to the end absolutely. and become just slightly thankless sort of, yeah. And then there's that whole guilt about my, oh, I've got a to-read pile and stuff. And it's sort of like, well, who cares? I don't know. Yeah. Um, you look uh, nice. It's yeah, fine. yeah, it's fine. Yeah, exactly. Just yeah, yeah. Um, yeah we have we have a customer in the shop who has a, a hundred page rule. So if he can't get into it within a hundred pages, he gives up. And I think that's quite a good way of thinking about it because you're right. Everyone seems to have this thing where they're like, "Well, we must, we must finish the book. We've committed." But uh, I, I don't think that you should have to make your life suffer. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's it, it, it's like I mean, people do have it a bit with kind of TV and stuff. Yeah, I've heard people say kind of like, "Oh, you've got to stick it out through episode seven, and then it gets great." And it's kind of like I'm not watching six episodes of something that's rubbish, and then you know, on the off chance that it's going to turn amazing. But yeah, hundred pages that seems kind of. I think I might lower it to about fifty or something. I think, but yes, I mean, it's ten is probably too few to kind of give something a chance, especially if. Right, is there anything like me where I think there's that thing where you're writing something and you overwrite the first chapter to death and you kind of look back on it and go, oh, that's become this weird sort of ossified baroque kind of thing where the sentences have turned into these strange, horrible things. And the rest of it isn't like that. It's just kind of like, yeah, you spend too much time on that first chapter and I think that's a good thing. But obviously that's what a good editor is for, is to say. Yes, they're worth their weight in gold. So once you discovered the Doctor Who books, was that it? Were you an avid reader from that point or did you kind of duck and dive into the world of reading? Yeah, I mean, uh, like I say, because I'd been a bit slow um, and then I think I just had 
I can't remember what it was, you know, flashcards or whatever it was that they tried to teach you to uh, read with. And I just, anyway, nothing kind of went in. And then um, I just had a, one really good teacher, Mrs. Carruthers. And at that, at that point, I kind of, you know, suddenly leapt up. Yeah, I think from that, I was pretty kind of, yeah, what you describe as bookish, I guess. You know, I did read a lot of sci-fi. I mean, um, that was definitely my kind of childhood thing. So, you know, Doctor Who led me to Hitchhiker's Guide and, you know, I there was, yeah, John Wyndham and everything. So that was sort of my my big thing probably until early teens, I guess. And yeah. I love the fact that you still remember the name of the teacher. It's that whole thing about never never forget a good teacher, is it? It's uh, to have that person have such an influence on yeah. you. I also remember the names of the really rubbish ones as well, but I just, you know, I'm not <laughs> going to say that because <laughs> it's like, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, it just, you know, it is one of those things that can make a kind of crazy vital difference to your life that you're unaware of at the time. Um, so, yeah. And I think that's one of those things that, I mean, we're now what in the fifth month of this crazy COVID state period that we're going through. And I think if, if there's one thing that all of us have come out of is appreciating uh, how, brilliant teachers are and what they do yeah. um, i think every single person i know that has children agrees with that um so speaking of which obviously we're, we're living with covid so life's a bit strange at the moment you're currently living in banbury in oxfordshire um and you work full-time as a writer what what's life like for you um my girlfriend would, would do a hollow laugh at the working full-time bit um it's kind of like i work full-time as much as yes i don't have another job but i'm not sure that 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 counts really um <laughs> i mean yeah it's it's difficult because you know my kind of my whole normal working inverted commas um pattern uh, was always you know you, i've never been great at working at home um which is sort of annoying given that you know obviously this is a job that working from homes kind of should be the big bit of it so i've always gone to cafes and you need that kind of hubbub going about i mean that's the, the big thing that the pandemic has kind of met up i mean i realize that's not the he's had more important ramifications than me not being able to see in um loud coffee shops but, no, but i get that there's a thing about going to work isn't there even if that going to work is walking down the street and going to a coffee yeah shop. there's a guy um called john schwarzfelder who uh, was a writer on the simpsons and he always used to go and do his writing in a denny's right away whilst chain smoking and then the smoking ban came in and he suddenly found that he wasn't allowed to go and sit in the Denny's and just smoke all the way through his breakfast. So he actually, because he was on quite serious Simpsons money by that point, he had a replica Denny's booth built in his house. And, you know, I think he kind of got as far as employing a waitress or something to sort of come and bring him the coffee. But if I had the money, that's the thing I do. I'd have my kind of replica Cafe Nero or whatever with their terrible playlist of songs that they have, which it turns out I actually need to have going on in the background in order to come up with anything i might do that actually it's a good idea when i'm between projects i'm not I, I honestly i don't know what i do with my day or times really it sort of seems to go uh, i always said this i've had some time between two jobs and i always said that during that period i could never quite remember how you fitted work in because there's always so much other stuff to do yeah and, uh, I think it's quite interesting how that happened. I mean, it's, you know, the terrible truth of it is that certainly back when I was doing, you know, boring temping jobs and just sort of 
writing on the side, I'm pretty sure I was more prolific and got more stuff done whilst also having a full-time job. It's that weird thing where it kind of it's it's all a bit counterintuitive with your writing are you i think i probably already made the answer you've just said but are you quite structured or does it just kind of come to you i mean some people sit down and almost treat it like you know i'm going to do from 10 a.m to 2 p.m or 9 to 5 or whatever but other people just say i wait for the inspiration to hit how do you work I just, I mean, I have constant battle. Yeah, I mean, I, the thing I would love most of all be to, you know, be one of these people that manages to develop a, a routine. And you always read these interviews with Murakami or whatever, where it's kind of like, oh, I get up at 4am and I run for five miles and look at my desk by 5.30am and then I start writing my 4,000 words and it's kind of like, it's like, oh, you bastard. Um, <laughs> it's kind of like, or oh. I mean, Graham Green, I think it was, who sort of write his 500 words or whatever it was per day and he'd do it and he would stop on the 500 yeah he would never do a word more to to the extent that if a book finished whilst he was doing the 500 you know he was only on 350 words then he'd just start the 150 words of the next book which i'm not sure i can really believe it just seems preposterous way of working but that is the the dream and you have to it's only when i manage to trick myself into some sort of structure that i do get anything done because if i genuinely just sat around waiting for inspiration then which you know i have certainly tried that approach and then you look at the calendar and go oh a a year went by and i don't appear to have had any inspiration so it's uh at some point i think that's that's going to come unstuck but i mean i'm in a lucky position at least uh, i've got my agent who gets quite angry with me and says what the hell are you doing why haven't you written anything for however long it is and gives me a sort of deadline which i don't entirely believe her deadline because there's just limit the amount of threat she can do to me but it sort of it definitely helps i think uh, that's your motivation yeah, that's well, your motivation. without a deadline you yeah. know it's kind of because i really like the idea of writing and it's great when you finish something that's quite a nice feeling but i'm not one of these people that sits us to saying like oh yeah i know i love the actual process i find it a struggle and quite difficult and it's got that annoying thing where it doesn't feel like you get any better at understanding necessarily how it works in a way that i feel other kind of craft it's a bit more muscle memory and you train yourself up in it and then you can start carving statues of david or whatever and it's kind of like yeah i can knock another one of those out i know how to do it whereas it's that again it's a bit of a cliche but i think each each book you produce kind of it's like being a absolute beginner again or at least that's that's my experience i heard a quote the other day where somebody said nobody likes being a writer but everybody likes having written something yeah i think that's yeah i think that's really true and it applies to lots of jobs but yeah I, i think the thing i don't like about writing is there's not enough sort of micro achievements along the way in terms of you know you get your big kind of things of like handing in your book yeah that's Great. And you might be working on a thing where there's a less so in prose. If you're doing some sort of, you know, script work or whatever, then there might be a bit of a knotty sort of logistical problem where it's more like doing a bit of maths in a way and you can kind of solve it and kind of go, oh, okay, yeah, no, I know that's that's going to work. And that's the sort of that kind of micro achievement of a day. But I think generally it's that thing of during a day, I don't get many bits where I can feel like, oh, I can pat myself on the back. Yeah. Which I guess is why people have their word counts, because at least you can then say, well, 
I manage that and that's better than nothing. But you know, the script writing on the film, were you involved in that or you, did you just, was your book just kind of handed over and other people dealt with it? No, it it was, yeah, I mean, it's this really weird thing where, yeah, they kind of, they brought me in to have a go at it. I think with the expectation that then it will get kind of handed off to someone else because, you know, I'm not a, uh, professional uh, at that point i didn't have any screen credits really and then for some reason they just they kept me on and i wrote it all so they uh i mean that some of these very good comedy writers andy and kev they did, did a pass at it you know we, we and obviously with a script it is also a bunch of you in a room having a chat working it out thrashing it out so pete lord the director and you know everybody it's a lot of voices it stops being entirely your thing but no it was i think at that point it was kind of me and um you know, I think Gillian Flynn, Gone Girl, she got to write her script for the film, but it's really vanishingly rare. I remember, you know, there's like Nabokov didn't get to write the, his script, you know, kind of wanted to, and then was like, no, no, we'll get someone, you know, proper in. And so score one for me over Nabokov. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, and it was uh, an oddly untraumatic experience. I think usually, you know, from everything I've subsequently learned and stuff, you know, you get horribly messed about by the studios and all, all of that. And it was just, yeah, it was really pleasant. I mean, it helps Ardman just, it's it's a nice bunch of people to, to work for. And they were quite good at insulating me from Sony, who were maybe slightly less nice, some of them. <laughs> Sounds like it was a pretty great experience. Yeah, it was it was lovely. Yeah, a, a really good. Yeah, and just, just one of the things is it's quite nice working with people and actually having some human contact because that's the the other bit of writing books that is less fun. Really, I, I don't is that sort of you get to have a bit of a chat with your editor and your agent and everything. And you know, if there's an illustrator, maybe. But it's basically it is a slightly lonely thing to do. Yeah, it's been interesting because we have quite a few regular customers in the shop that are writers that often pop in during the week and have a bit of a chat. And they quite a few of them have basically said their lives have pretty much been almost unaffected in terms of their day to day life through yeah, this whole that thing. horrible thing where you realise yes, lockdown is just your normal life. Um, <laughs> and no, I think. There's a lot of sites to about Douglas Adams used to turn up at the publisher and just sort of hang about the office for the whole day and they'd be like oh Douglas go home go there and he just sort of like I think he's that craving some some human contact so what are you reading at the moment what have you just read I mean the last book I just actually read was um we have always lived in the castle um Shirley Jackson which I don't know if that counts because it's not the not the first time I've read it i don't tend to reread there's maybe like a half dozen books that i revisit but and that's just one of them i don't know maybe it's because of a lockdown thing it's sort of it seems quite appropriate um i don't know if you know it i know of it i haven't read it it's uh two, two sisters who yes are living in alone in this house where i mean it's you know shirley jackson because it's how it's gothic and crushing psychology of being an adolescent and stuff, but it just, it has certain kind of pandemic parallels, to be honest. And I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan. Good of, read. It's great. And it just, I just, I really like Shirley Jackson as well. I like the fact that she used to put curses on her publisher and stuff as a sort of semi functioning witch. And which is not to have say that I have any issues with my publisher. I like my publisher very much. I wish, do not wish to curse them, but can still sort of identify with that. The other question I always like to ask people is, um, which book has changed their life now we were messaging before 
we've spoken today. And I think you were wrangling with this a little bit. Have you um, been able to come up with one? It's really difficult. It's just, because I, I just, I don't know. I, I, I feel like a question like that. You want to say something sort of important and, oh, Anna Karenina. Like I say, I do. I like Anna Karenina a lot. It's good. But I don't tend to read a book and then sort of have a swoon and like, oh my God, this is my life-changing epiphany. Um, so it's kind of... Yeah, it's really difficult. I think like anything, it's got to be something you've maybe read as a teenager or something, because that's the sort of the time of your life where you really sort of feel stuff. And I'm not saying I'm dead inside since being a teenager, but you know what I mean? It's kind of everything's a bit more heightened and stuff. And you're at that phase of your life where you can really feel like, oh my God, this has sort of changed everything. Um, Again, you know, if I'm being fully honest, I've still got to go back to Terence Dix and the first Doctor Who book I read because, you know, I think the book that sort of makes you into reading is has got to be the most profound, life-changing one. Um, but, I, I, yeah, I don't know. It's really difficult. I think that's okay. You know, <laughs> I think, I think I, I'm, I'm with you. I think an awful lot of people feel like an answer to this question should be something really highbrow um, and very literary. But I, I, that's not what that's not what I'm trying to find out. I'm trying to... Or, you know, it. maybe it's a kind of... Maybe there's some anthropology text that switched me on to all that because... No, because that was an interesting degree choice. Well, it kind of wasn't my degree choice at first, actually. It was, uh, I went to do history at uni and then I kind of, it was only a few weeks in and I wasn't massively enjoying it. I didn't get on with one of the tutors particularly and it was kind of like, ah, is this the the right thing because i'd loved it at a level and again i had a really great a level history teacher and that and he'd been the one who persuaded me like oh yeah no you should apply for this and there was a girl who i met doing archaeology and anthropology the same girl i then wrote the book to try and impress um which yeah none of that worked doesn't matter um, i've moved on um, i thought you were going to be your, and that's my girlfriend no 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 no, no. but yes yeah, so i I, I think you know. I picked up a couple of uh, probably structural anthropology one by Claude Levi Strauss. I'm not sure I understood it. I don't think I still understand it really, partly because I'm not sure some of it really makes much sense. But I think that sort of synthesis of stuff I liked. I also liked the fact that anthropologists seemed less bogged down in, you know, there were the, the human scientists uh, and everything, and they they were very much you know, had their graphs and were keen on making this a science and everything. And anthropology seemed much more based on, let me tell you an anecdote about the time I went to Papua New Guinea sort of thing. And I quite like that. I quite like the storytellingness of it. I'm not sure it lends itself to a serious academic discipline, but I just shifted course, basically. I like the generalist nature of it, I suppose, which um, I guess is why I feel I can then write a book like the Atlas book that I've written because... That was a very smooth segue there, you see. Um, (laughs) But it's that thing that I think kind of if I'd stuck with, you know, history, and I'm sure proper historians would rightly resent saying like, you know, why are you writing a a history book? Because this is not your academic wheelhouse. Um, It's that thing of because it's jumping all over the place. uh, I'm not sure history these days really lets you be a generalist like that. I think you've kind of got to more sort of pick your area of expertise and expect it to to stay to that, which is obviously a you know fairly sensible approach. But talk to talk a little bit more about your new book now you've mentioned it because uh, it's called an Atlas of Extinct Countries, yeah, and published on the third of September, along with um, five hundred ninety nine other books. I believe it's the, the, the most yeah. books ever published on one day. So that's good. But yeah, I say the rest are rubbish. So 
don't don't buy any of them. No, apart from the one that I spoke to the author last week. Yes, (laughs) okay, you had to do that. that one. So talk about your talk about your book. I mean, it's kind of what it says on the can. Um, it says it is a atlas of countries that have fallen off the map and died for various stupid reasons. And there are loads of them, aren't Is it forty-eight? Uh, I think there's forty-eight in this. I mean, it's, you know, it, it all depends. I, there's a slight disclaimer at the start where I talk about the you know the difficulty of defining a country because it's not a thing that anybody can really agree on and you know the sort of the whole concept of a nation state is not something that really applies to kind of a, a big swathe of history which means there's a you know bit of a kind of time cut off but I then sort of ignore that and so they're countries in a slightly loose sense like I say if if you were on pointless and you were answering a roundabout countries you know that they have their very firm it's got to be as defined by the UN's list of but even that you know it, it swaps it changes it's disputed issues like Taiwan etc and it's yeah it's generally it's a big old mess that I try not to get too worried about so yes it's 48 more or less countries I mean one of them's just a hospital ward so you know and I'm not seriously arguing that a hospital ward was ever really a country but it's these these odd legal gray areas that have arisen how did it come about is this something that you you were interested in personally and just kind of evolved or was it something that you were kind of tasked with looking at how did it yeah I mean I, it's it's one of the things where it's just always been a kind of casual kind of interest of I think I had to think I mentioned in the book there's um I'm talking about Tanu Tuva and Richard Feynman um and his basically quest to to visit it purely based on the fact that when he was a kid there was a blob on the globe that you know wasn't there anymore and he found that kind of amazing and I think I kind of as a kid you know, I remember there were like there was like a blue peter appeal or something for where you had to kind of find stamps and send them in stamps and you know my mum got a big kind of old book out of whatever and it had you know these yeah stamps from places that they weren't there anymore and that side of things and just the whole kind of old maps stuff that's changed I went through a bit of a kind of eBay phase where I'd be you know kind of buying old maps and globes because I really wanted to buy but they go for stupid money just really really you know you need to be yeah in a higher pay scale uh, to to afford good old globes um but i picked up a couple of you know battered ones and that sort of things and that you know so that kind of leads you to then reading up on those places and it was just one of those things where i think i semi-consciously picked up a lot of trivia and then my agent was i say it'd been another of these periods where i'd sort of managed to not knuckle down to work for ages and she was bugging me and saying like look you've got to you know pitch me some non-fiction ideas and i pitched a bunch um a lot of which were very half thought out but and this was the one that she, she got enthusiastic about and i then did a bit more research and then quite quickly found oh gosh you know there's there's a lot of these weird little stories out there and so that's how it, it came about and then it sort of it went through a bit of a development hell because it was kind of like it was at one publisher and then I moved publisher, which I think is quite weird. I don't think that normally oh, happens. Yeah. Um, I was surprised to, to read that when you said yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was it was initially going to be much more of a kind of, uh, you know, picture book and the text was slightly less important. To them. And then I kind of 
maybe slightly over-delivered in terms of the detail of the stories. It just kind of, you know, I mean, anything that's got heavy graphical content can just take a long time, but things sort of stop moving and eventually we just all agree, like, look, you know, this is probably going to work better as this different thing, actually. And so that's, yeah, how I ended up at, back with my old Pirates editor, actually, at uh, Fourth Estate. Um, I was about to say, it was the same, it was the same editor. Yeah, Helen Garland-Williams, who she obviously, I don't know, felt sorry for me or something. But yes, yeah, it could be, could be that. Is yeah. that strange though? Because the Pirates is obviously historical fiction, and this is not fiction. Is is has it been a very different process, like actually creating the book with the editor, or has it been fairly similar? Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's certainly the the whole writing of it is a very different process in terms of obviously the, the danger with historical fiction, like Pirates. I think is especially something as light and stupid and meant to be funny as Pirates is. Too much research can really kind of mess you up because you know you need to know about if you're writing the parts and adventure with Karl Marx and everything then yes you need to know a fair bit about it but if you start putting in kind of gags that require a deep knowledge of the work of Engels and stuff then slightly shaky ground really um it's it's, it's not going to work whereas so yeah it's just obviously the, the the obvious main level of difference is that it's a lot more time sat in a British library uh working on a book like this editorially kind of by the time Helen got to see it you know she was she really liked sort of it as it was so she didn't then kind of request too much in the way of of changes or anything uh, well, that's nice to hear. I, I'm constantly hearing um, these horror stories about, uh, you know, 10, 15 rewrites of books. So it must be quite nice to know that what you, what you produced was was what they were looking for. Yeah, well, it's that. Uh, I mean, the advantage was it was, by that point, a complete thing. And so, you know, she, she bought it because she liked it rather than sort of me proposing a thing and then it turning into not quite what she'd envisaged or whatever because obviously everyone's going to have slightly different ideas of the final product but it's uh it, it started off just from that sort of you know the the mappiness and you know I like I do I also you know I like a map and I like a book about maps and but then it is individual entries it wasn't it wasn't written with a kind of like I'm going to approach this kind of with a thesis or a theme or something but these themes sort of arise naturally out of it you know you kind of realize oh i'm writing about the sort of fourth journalist with a dead dad who is a bit of a womanizer stint in the army oh, and it's like yet again it's uh this character type turned up to set up a country and you realize i was i think when i started it i was expecting more in a way of people after self-determination and stuff and there's there's less of those stories there's a lot of madmen and chances involved really? uh, so tell us about one of the most obscure countries in your book the, the hospital ward one is 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 mainly in there really because it's okay it's not uh, it's the one that is least at least a country it's uh but it's what the film passport to pimlico uh the screenwriter of that uh had been inspired by which is oh God, i always get the the mum and the daughter muddled up uh, as he flicks through his own book to try and remember. Uh, mm. Yes, Princess Juliana, I was right, who was the, from the Dutch royal family and had, during the Second World War, fled to Canada. Uh, but, you know, the Dutch had these 
various, not particularly more daft than anybody else, but still daft rules of royal succession. And if she gave birth, then it, it couldn't be on foreign soil because then they wouldn't be eligible to be the, the heir to the throne and blah, blah, blah. And so yeah, there's this, it ends up being this ridiculous legal wrangling phrases that they eventually settle on uh, creating a, an extra territorial state around that kind of works as a bubble around Princess Juliana. So wherever she happens to give birth will be declared non-sovereign in terms of it's it's not going to be it's, it's not Dutch territory, but it's not part of Canada for the duration of the birth either. And so, you know, arguably it's its own kind of, oh, I think I make the point, uh, uh, while she's actually in labour, she could have probably kind of gone, right, oh, this is my own special country I'm in now. I can pass all these laws and do what I will. But, um, but I mean, that, that's probably the least country of them all. I mean, the sort of, I like Cospea, I think, which is the, the little kind of village basically in Italy where back when it's the Papal States and, Duke of Milan and everybody, you know, it's all rival sort of Pope Eugene, who had been trying to argue that he was the undisputed word of God and how his word was absolute and he was infallible. Um, and other people in the Catholic Church disagreed with this and it, you had this big kind of semi-war about it. And he basically uh, had to borrow a lot of money in order to fund his campaign. And he borrowed it from the Medici family, who then at the end of it were like, okay, well, as collateral, you put down a big chunk of the papal states that we're now going to take that land. And he was like, all right, fair enough, deal's a deal. So they go to draw the line at this river where they're going to separate off. But somehow both sides fail to notice that the river's got a little tributary bit and they both draw their border up to the edges of different bits of river and there's this little sliver of land in the middle cospea which suddenly found itself okay we're not part of the papal states now and we're not part of burgundy wherever it was so they're like great we can just go it alone and become a sort of anarchist utopia and then basically tobacco came along and they started because the catholic church banned tobacco because obviously catholic church they like banning stuff and Cospeo were like, oh, well, we're the only people that, you know, we've got the right climate for it and we can farm this. And we're the only ones really allowed to do so. So they basically, you know, had a great time, made a lot of money for a while, but then sort of got a bit too disreputable. It was kind of, you know, too many people deserting the army, etc. sort of annoyed a few too many people. So they ended up getting reabsorbed, but were allowed to go on making the tobacco. So that was their one kind of sop from the Pope. But I mean, most of the stories are quite they're quite stupid, but I think that is because countries are slightly stupid. I don't know. I kind of I have this odd love hate thing where I kind of despise nationalism of any form, but I really enjoy all the flags and stuff and all that. So I think it's when you talk about that, just hearing you speak about that little country, it's it's incredible, isn't it? Because you that that could have been written as fiction, couldn't it? It doesn't almost sound like it's something that's actually happened. And and a lot of these things are the historical record is uh if you go to Cospea, you know, there there's a little plaque there and et cetera, et cetera. And there's I mean, there's like, you know, the other example, the Great Republic of Rough and Ready, which was a town in California that seceded from the Union until they realised that they could no longer buy beer and then were like, Oh, we better join again. And it's kind of there's a lot of these things where it's questionable the the actual kind of legal truth of 
of some of them. But then again, like I say, you know, the legal grey areas and questionableness kind of applies to some of the bigger places as well. So the the odd bit was maybe realizing again how people are very sensitive about this stuff. And certainly at first it was going to get a lot of books, uh, you know, printed in China because that's where a lot of printing happens. And then it very quickly became apparent. It's like, yeah, you're not getting your book printed in China because we absolutely will not print something that talks about Formosa and anything that we don't recognize as a proper play. You know, it's, it's, they're very sensitive to the indivisible nature of the Chinese state. So it's it's odd. The bigger they get, the kind of more sensitive people they get. You know, so like I say, you end up having it printed in the Balkans because the Balkans have got a much more kind of that's a fair attitude. So obviously, when a book normally comes out, there's usually quite a lot of publicity that goes on with it, which often involves people, authors going out and about and speaking to people. Clearly, at the moment, that's not something that's easy to do. Mm. So what's planned around the book? Are you, are you doing um, virtual publicity or is, is it just um, going to get out there and just see what happens? I, it's just difficult. It's 600 books published on one day because of the bottleneck of stuff that got delayed. So um, I think there's a a bit of a move towards a slightly longer term thing of making it a bit less movie-like in terms of it's not all about your opening weekend and you hope to kind of bubble along and then discovering it as you go. Well, we're really excited about having the book in the shop. I think it's brilliant. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm also. I didn't say this when you were talking, but I'm also a bit of a map nerd. I love, I love a map. Everywhere I go, I have to get one, and I just think the concept of what you've you've put together is just brilliant. So, thank you for creating it, and um, thank you so much for for joining me today. It's been really fun talking to you, and I've loved the fact that we found out lots of different things about your life. So, thank you, and I wish you all the best for the publication of your new book. Thanks very much. And thanks for asking me. And uh, like I said, I hope kind of you managed to salvage a couple of actual sentences from from that whole whole thing. Because like I say, yeah, getting to the end sentence is not my strong point anymore. Just never was, but really, really lost, lost the ability. So yeah. I'll do my best. Thank you. Very nice to talk to you. Thank you. 